Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey, and today I am speaking with Dr. Camelia Smith. She is an OBGYN and a fierce women's health advocate in Texas and nationwide. She is a board-certified fellow of the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, a certified menopausal health practitioner by the North American Menopausal Society, and clinical assistant professor at Texas A&M Health Science Center College at Medicine at Baylor University Medical Center. Dr. Smith is also the founder of her new practice, Charleston House Gynecology, which offers a new approach to women's healthcare and wellness inspired by the needs of the modern woman. As a gynecologist, Dr. Camelia Smith has cared for thousands of women over the last 13 years and understands the demands placed on women and how it impacts their health. Dr. Smith is passionate about educating and empowering her patients to advocate for their own well-being. Charleston House was created to provide a truly personalized healthcare experience to women beyond childbearing all in a charming East Tech, East Dallas house equipped with a co-working space, not East Texas. That's a totally different thing. East Dallas. <laughs> Prior to opening Charleston House, Dr. Smith co-founded Magnolia OBGYN at Baylor University Medical Center, where she practiced for 12 years. After graduating from Texas A&M, Dr. Smith served the women of Texas by advocating in Washington, D.C. on healthcare policies, and then moved on to do so at the state level in Austin. Following graduation from medical school, she moved home to her roots and to her calling, providing health care to the women of Dallas. She completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Baylor University Medical Center in 2007, where she continues to practice today. Dr. Smith considers motherhood one of her highest callings and incorporates the joy that she has experienced as a mother directly into the care she provides for each of her patients. She resides in the Lakewood area of Dallas with her husband, Ryan, a pediatric anesthesiologist. They are fortunate to have three healthy children that enrich their lives. It is her sincere desire and privilege to give back to the community and serve women and their families. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for that introduction. I am really excited to get into this because, you know, we haven't, we've talked about all sorts of random health topics and issues, but we haven't really gone straight into the issue of women's health today. What are the biggest concerns and, and how can we partner with our healthcare providers to get the care that we need? So let's just start there and let, let's ask that. I'll ask that question. How can women advocate for our health and well-being and also partner with our providers in that way? What is your vision for that? Well, I think the first step to advocating for yourself or for a woman's ability to advocate for herself is understanding truly what are the issues um, that she needs to be focusing on and concerned with and just aware of. You know, so much of women's health is sort of coined or, or simplified down or dummy down to what happens in the pelvis. They think breast and pelvis, and there's so much more to women's health than just that. And so understanding that we are more than, I guess, a <laughs> breast and ovaries and uterus, <laughs> that's a good place to start. Knowing that our mind is important, our mental health, um, 
our cognitive function, our, then working from the top all the way down. Let's start with mind, which can be mood, uh, mental well-being, mental health, cognitive function, memory, uh, moving down to the heart, cardiovascular disease, as we've all heard, is the number one killer in women and will continue to be so for probably as long as I'll walk the earth. Um, and then and now we're just now to the breast. So understanding that women's health involves so much more bone health, hormone health, sexual function. Yes, we get that breast cancer. Everybody's worried about that ovarian, uterine, vaginal health, but it's much, much more than that. So understanding that is number one is how you advocate for yourself. Number two, partnering with your provider. That means just being comfortable with who you choose to see your care from. And I always tell women, I might not be for you. I might not be the person that can give you the answer you want. I always encourage my patients to get a second opinion. I want another set of eyes on a situation. Um, but to partner with someone means that you have to be able to really feel comfortable with someone. And so my least favorite thing in the exam room is when a woman feels that I have the upper hand and she doesn't. She has to feel completely comfortable with me. I, if I'm the only person that she can tell some of these dark secrets to, then I want to be that person for her. So partnering with some partnering with someone, it's just like partnering with a with your partner in life. You have to feel comfortable with them. I care for a lot of women. I have the honor and privilege of caring for a lot of women that either became friends after I started caring for them or they were friends prior and then um, selected me to be their practitioner. And they always wanted, they always asked me the question, are you okay with taking care of me? I am always fine. But what I want to know is that they are comfortable. They have to be completely um, you know, disinhibited and, a bit, and have the ability to share everything. So don't wall off certain areas. Don't make areas off limits for your doctor. If you really want to partner with them, you kind of have to give them access to all the things, the things that are, that, you know, hold you back in life, that disappoint you in your health, um, those kind of things as well, and not be embarrassed or have the sense that your physician is going to judge you um, for feeling a certain way about something. And it is okay to disagree with your doctor. I have been made smarter, not by medical school. I have been made smarter by the thousands of women that I care for. They have helped me and pushed me to learn and to realize that women are evolving. I have to evolve with them. Thank goodness that healthcare is evolving. And so, you know, it is okay to disagree or educate your provider. And I think that's how you truly partner with them. Yeah, I think that's really good. And it's so interesting. You know, I think because we live in this world of all the, you know, the shoulds and the coulds and women, we have so much pressure. A lot of times pressure we just put on ourselves that it might be hard for a lot of women to admit, yeah, this is not working well in my body or I'm having this symptom and I, I'm checking all these boxes. I'm doing all these things, but this is still not right. And there's something a little bit maybe shameful about that when we feel like we're not measuring up to what we think we should be. And that, that can be really burdensome for a lot of women. Correct. Correct. Um, I think it's comforting for women to hear when they come in with an array of symptoms. What I often tell them is something that is common is not normal. Um, and women do quite the opposite of really what they should do. We learn to accept things and we say, well, you know, this is just how it is. And so things that are common do not mean that they're normal. Is it common for you to lose urine when you cough, laugh or sneeze or get up off the floor after you've birthed some babies? 
Sure, it's really common, but do not assume that that is normal. Um, and I think that that is another area where women have to just sort of say, okay, I am giving myself permission to now take care of some things and put my needs possibly before everybody else that I care for. And let's look at some of these things that I have just sort of, you know, brushed under the rug and agreed to accept as a common way of life that may in fact impact their quality of life and their overall well-being. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. That's really good. And you mentioned something else a little bit ago about um, women's healthcare evolving. And so in what ways do you see that it is evolving and it is changing and what are some changes that you, I mean, I know you yourself, you're doing some very different things with your practice right now. So what's going on there? Well, I would start with what did I learn in my OBGYN residency? And I learned that women try to get pregnant, have babies, and if they can't get pregnant, then they're, you know, there's a whole nother world of fertility and hormone regulation. And then once they exit their reproductive years, they head into menopausal years. And then there may be some what we call benign gynecological conditions smattered in there. And then also, you know, we were educated on diagnosing and, um, identifying cancer. And that was really it. Very little education on what are the things that really impact a woman's quality of life. And that is what is so unique to the practice of obstetrics and gynecology or specifically women's health and gynecology. It's the one area in medicine where we really focus on what are the things that really impact a woman's quality of life. And I think quality of life should be, is just as important for a woman. That's what she can see and touch and feel and it lives with every day. These other ethereal things as the, you know, I need to worry about, will I get Alzheimer's or will I have a heart attack and all these other things? Yes, that's my job. You know, my job is to keep you healthy, identify the things that could potentially make you unhealthy i.e. cancer or cardiovascular disease, but there's this whole other area of quality of life issues that need to be addressed. We were not taught this in residency. It was not an emphasis in medical school. And it certainly wasn't something that I had much time or energy or attention to focus on in my first few years out in private practice. And so I think women's health is finally evolving because we recognize that women should be thriving. And something that I've recently just you know, words that came to me not too long ago or women should thrive, not survive the transitions of their life. And if this is coming to terms with infertility or coming to terms with, um, you know, maybe I'm not going to get married or coming to terms with how my body looks after pregnancy or, you know, premature ovarian insufficiency, wait, I'm 35, I'm going through menopause, no one saw that coming. Or the traditional menopausal you know, years that happen, you know, in the late forties to early fifties. And so talking about sexual function during these transitions, talking about um, mindset, talking about nutrition, talking about um, how do I, you know, intermittent fasting and um, all these things that are emerging that are really geared towards helping women find the best way to thrive during these transitions of their lives is really the essence of how healthcare is evolving. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. You mentioned so many things that I wanna 
go back and touch back on because it's, it's really good. These are all things that I have lots of questions on because like you said before, things that we accept as common aren't necessarily normal. So what would you say with hormone health and even just say your menstrual cycle, right? Like what should be the norm and what are things that we should go, well, wait a minute, that's a sign that something is off. What do you, what are the red flags there? Well, first of all, I do not get to determine what's normal for a woman. I have definitions. I can say, well, if you don't have a period more than every 45 days, that's abnormal. Or if you go six months, correct. Uh, There are definitions, medical terms that I can say, you have amenorrhea, no cycle, or oligomenorrhea, too few cycles, or polymen, you know, too many periods. I can tell that woman that that's an abnormal, but really the patient gets to determine if something is not to her satisfaction. So what I mean by that is I have some women who say, I'm like, how are your cycles? Oh, they're fine. Well, you can't leave it at that. What does fine mean? Well, how often are you having them? Well, I'm having them about every two and a half to three weeks. Okay. So are you okay with that? Well, I mean, I really don't. I mean, it's just how I've always been. So some women may find think that that is fine. There are some women who don't really maybe have that heavy of cycles, but to them it's too heavy because they don't want they don't want to have a period at all. And so this idea or notion that women get to determine what's acceptable for them, specifically surrounding their menstrual cycle, where there be the frequency or the amount the duration so frequency meaning how frequent do they have one the amount is how much they perceive that they bleed is it light is it medium is it heavy Um, and then um, the duration is how many days you know if some women that have a period for seven days and there are some that are like no man i would never do that i only want a period for two days so recognizing that a woman's um, interpretation of what is acceptable is acceptable is, is acceptable. Like we have to accept that women, you know, get to determine what they want and they have options to do so. We have so many options for controlling um, menstrual cycles. One thing that I would like to say is that I think that your period is an outward manifestation of what's going on internally in your body. And if I didn't see that during COVID, I mean, it was, you know, people were, haven't had a period in three months. I am having too many periods, you know, and I think the sedentary lifestyle that we all had pushed upon us, none of us are as active as we were pre-COVID for a lot of us. Now, that's not to say I do have some women that pop in and they're like, man, I walked every day during COVID, sometimes twice a day, and they were able to shed some pounds. A majority of us (laughs) did not do that. And we just really hunkered down and enjoyed ourselves during COVID. Um, and put on, I would say the average weight gain during what I've seen in my practice is about 10 pounds, which is mm. a lot on women wow. in four months, right? Like that's a, that's a weight gain. But your menstrual cycle, it's an outward manifestation of what's going on internally in your body. And when I say internally, I mean, what are the, what are the stressors that are going on in your body? So is it weight gain? Is it emotional stress? Is it physical stress on your body? Um, And of course, there's always things that can go wrong, such as your thyroid, there can be some hormonal fluctuations that just happen what I, what I call de novo, meaning they just happen on their own without any identifiable inciting factors. But there's also things that we do to ourselves, right? 
that can disrupt hormonal pathways. So I did it to myself when I put on the COVID-10. I did that to myself. And then I became very estrogen dominant. Um, and so, you know, your period is a way, is your body's way of telling you, hey, this is how I'm doing. I do have women that want to come in sometimes and say, hey, will you please just recheck my fertility levels? I want to know if I'm, if I'm going to be able to have a baby. And the quick and dirty way to know if someone's ovulating, it's not, it's not a hundred percent, but is what is her period doing? Is she having a cycle every 28 to 30 days? And if you understand the pathophysiology behind the menstrual cycle, you will know why that is true. That mid cycle LH surge, LH made by the brain, that mid cycle LH surge that has to happen is what stimulates you to release a follicle. If the follicle doesn't get fertilized, then it involutes. If it does get fertilized, i.e. pregnancy, um, then it goes on and you have a corpus luteum cyst that maintains the pregnancy and the progesterone production until the placenta takes over. So there's this whole pathophysiology behind why the menstrual cycle occurs. And this is for women who are not on hormones. Um, and so if you're having a cycle every month, that implies, again, always not 100%, that you're getting that mid-cycle LH sur surge. And what when you're checking ovulation, right? So you have to ovulate to become pregnant. The LH surge leads to ovulation. The LH is what we check in the over-the-counter um, ovulation predictive prediction kits. And so that LH surge is what we're checking in the urine. So if I know that you're having a cycle every 28 to 30 days, it implies by and large that you are ovulating. And that's what you need to know kind of out of the gates, right? Um, now I said that that's if you're not on birth control pills. If you are on birth control pills and you have a cycle, it's okay. And if you don't have a cycle, it's okay. Um, some women get really baffled by this and I always tell them you having a period on a birth control is us medically manipulating you to bleed. We're just medically manipulating that and we're causing this with this withdrawal of hormones and that's why you bleed. Um, one thing that I think is important for women to know um, and to understand about their menstrual cycles is that and I think this goes back to sort of the environmental stressors and your period kind of telling you what's going on internally is that anytime you become estrogen dominant, you're going to notice that you're going to have a heavier period because estrogen is the one thing that really lines the uterus and the endometrium or the endometrial lining is what you slough off to have a cycle. And estrogen is the primer, it's the fluffer and progesterone sort of the lawnmower that comes through and thins it out. So in the front half of the cycle, you're estrogen dominant. In the back half of the cycle, you're progesterone dominant. If you don't ovulate in that mid LH surge that we just talked about, you don't get that progesterone. You don't get that lawnmower to thin out the, the front yard, the grass. And so you just get thicker and thicker and thicker lining. Eventually you'll have a period and that thick lining lends to a heavier period. So more estrogen, more lining, more to slough off, heavier period. Weight gain, adipose tissue is just another good place to make more estrogen. So I always tell women, more real estate, more estrogen. So if we add on pounds, we have more real estate, we can convert more things to more estrogen. There's all types of estrogen derivatives. We make estrogen from our ovaries, but we have this per peripheral conversion to estrone from testosterone. Um, and so more real estate, more estrogen, 
thicker lining, more to bleed. So it, it stands to reason that if you gain weight, you're gonna start seeing heavier periods. And the opposite is true as well. Thinner lining, lighter periods. Thinner women, less estrogen, less to slough off, lighter periods. So I can tell a lot about a woman by what's going on with her cycle sometimes. That's not to say that I don't see thin women who have really, really heavy periods or women that may be um, more elevated in their BMI who don't have thinner periods. But those are some of the fluctuations that we can reason around based on what's going on in a woman's body. That is so good. I, I'm so glad that you explained estrogen dominance because that is a phrase that is popping up a lot. And I think that is really common for a lot of women. Again, common, maybe not optimal, maybe not what we want, but I am hearing it as more of a common thing. And, and I wonder, yeah, that whole weight gain, the, the dance of gaining weight and the estrogen. And I mean, what are some things that women can do maybe naturally through food or through extra or supplements, anything you can think of that could help women kind of balance out their estrogen in natural ways? Sure. I think moving your body, um, replacing adipose tissue with more lean muscle mass, right? Um, so movement always helps. Movement helps too, because moving your body drives down insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is a big no-no for the ovaries. So let's talk about insulin resistance. It's one of my favorite things to Love it. Really work on with a woman, right? So what do we mean by insulin resistance? Think of insulin as a primer or a messenger to your tissue, right? So your insulin says, hey, you need to bring this glucose into the tissue. Insulin resistance is something that can set up over time for a lot of reasons but insulin resistance will also impact the ovaries ability to hear the hormones. And the way I tell women is if they're, if you're in a insulin resistant state and we haven't said anything about diabetes yet, right? So maybe this doesn't mean you're diabetic. It just means that you are um, less responsive to the insulin that you make, which is sort of the gateway to diabetes. Insulin will make the ovaries just really nearly deaf to its environment. They cannot respond here, however you want to describe it, to the hormones being made by the brain, the LH and FSH that are made by the brain that, that then stimulate the ovaries to make estrogen and progesterone. If you are insulin resistant, this will easily impact your ovaries and their ability to respond to those hormones and the receptors on the ovaries, the LH and FSH binder receptors on the ovaries. Um, you be can become less responsive to it. You almost can't hear it, you can't see it, and you certainly don't know how to respond to it or do what to do with it. So being insulin resistant has a huge impact on women's health. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, the most common endocrine disorder now, not thyroid, but PCOS, um, is a poorly understood um, the pathophysiology behind PCOS is very poorly understood, but we know a lot about PCOS. We're just not really sure what set it first. But some of the common things that we know about PCOS is that women tend to have unexplained weight gain or inability to lose weight. They have cycle dysregulation, possibly for reasons that we talked about from maybe being estrogen dominant because um, if you can't lose weight or you're gaining weight unexplainably, you're going to be tend to be a little bit more estrogen dominant. They start setting up a pathway that looks 
on its way to insulin resistance. And what do we know about that? The ovaries really start to become less responsive to their environment and the signals that they're receiving from the brain. And so the hallmark of that is if you're not getting the signals from the brain, that LH that we talked about mid-cycle surge, you're not able to release a follicle. So you're not ovulating. So some of the, the things that we sort of define or the triad we like to say for PCOS um, is menstrual irregularities, unexplained weight gain, um, lack of ovulation, and then you'll start seeing other things that have um, sort of, you know, identifiable things in a woman, elevated androgens or testosterone. So they may present either with um, just increased acne, increased facial hair growth, or what we call hirsutism, which is a hair growth pattern that occurs sort of in the midline for a woman. So just think of starting with my chin all the way down between my breast on the abdomen, upper torso, above the belly button, down the belt, down the belly. Um, and so that midline terminal hair growth pattern or hirsutism, you can sort of see that and you have to wonder, is that something that she's born with or is that falling into this PCOS process um, that's, you know, possibly associated with insulin resistance as well? Yeah, I'm so glad that you touched on insulin resistance and led that right into PCOS because I was going to ask about that as well. Because yeah, I, these are things that are just popping up a lot. I know a lot of people who are struggling in these areas and it does seem, I mean, I've frequently had guests coming on talking about insulin resistance because it does seem to be kind of this connector right now um, in our country that's a lot of people are struggling with. So I'm really glad that you brought that, brought that up. Um, one question I have, because, you know, I got a lot of listener questions about when I mentioned that we were going to do an episode specifically about women's health. And I'd love to talk about, because it's a little bit taboo, but changing or fluctuating sexual desire as we age, how mm -hmm. have you seen this happen in your practice? And again, is this another one of those common, but not normal things, or is this just a result of changing hormones? Like what does somebody do if that's, if that's their issue? Well, there's lots of reasons why women don't want to have sex. <laughs> we know we're <laughs> complex creatures. Uh, we're not one dimensional. And so why should it be any different in the bedroom? Right. Um, you know, desire, arousal, those are two things that have to happen before you actually can have a sexual event or climax or orgasm or any of that. So if you're just talking about desire comes first and then arousal, those two things can easily be impacted by a lot of things. So it's multifactorial as to what affects this. And so you have to sort of break it down with a woman. If she is menopausal or has had um, breast cancer and she's on tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors that are going to drop her estrogen, she's going to have a very, very dry vaginal tissue. And she have, may not have been educated on this by her oncologist and had said, I'm cancer free. Here I go. Start trying to be intimate again with her partner and realize that there's nothing but pain. Well, over time, our bodies have learned to protect ourselves, right? Our bodies will go into a protect, protection mode. So then those pelvic floor muscles and those vaginal muscles will begin to be on guard, if you will. And then they may even go into a little bit of a spasm because they're trying to protect her. So now you have dryness, you have some levator spasms in the pelvic floor and the vaginal tissue. So why would she want to have sex? So now her desire is gone, right? 
well, did it start with lack of desire or was it because pain set up and now her brain's smart enough to know, don't go down that road. That hurts. Don't do that. You don't want to do that. And now she'll kind of say, well, I really just don't even want to have sex. She doesn't say, I want to have sex, but it hurts too bad. They don't come to you at that point. They wait and wait and wait, think it'll get better. Well, maybe I just need to try more and try harder and try some home remedies, whatever those would be, <laughs> hurt it all. <laughs> Instead, they wait and then they come in, you know, six months, a year later and say, I just really haven't had sex with my husband in a year. And I just really don't even care to. So is it something that led to the decrease in desire or was it desire at the onset that dropped? Desire can be impacted by many things. One of the most common things that we see in women are going to be um, lack of desire due to medications, antidepressant classes. Fortunately, we now know enough to know that this is a problem. So if I hand a woman Zoloft or Prozac or Lexapro, the second thing out of my mouth, one of the first things out of my mouth should be, hey, this can impact your sexual desire and arousal. Those medications will impact both. They're like a, you know, double hitter. And so we are doing women a disservice if we don't tell them right out of the gates. Now, that's not to say that some women don't actually experience the opposite. I've seen the opposite. Maybe they were so down and depressed that maybe just a little bit of serotonin organized them enough that they will see a little bit improvement in their desire. This is usually transient. They'll see a little peak in their desire and then they'll see it come back down. And then they may see their inability to be aroused and have, um, so then arousal becomes a problem with the SSRI or serotonin agents. So we want to realize truly what caused the decrease in desire. Most women will um, see a peak in this. Um, and I wanna say this too about desire. The brain is set up in a couple of regions. We have an excitatory region, we have an inhibitory region, we have all these things. We now have these new fantastic drugs that work on both sides of those to increase a woman's desire. So we know far more now than we did a year ago, two years ago, much less 10 years ago. So back to how women's health is evolving, people are actually committed to finding ways to make a woman's quality of life better. And they're studying it down to the level of her brain. So to me, I feel like that is just super exciting and encouraging. Um, but we now have lots of ways to impact desire with medications. Um, I could talk about those all day long. I think it's super fun to, um, we're at, actually, if you can get a woman to partner with you in that and understand why these medications work well, um, it's truly exciting to see um, the benefits and hear their feedback on that. Um, but desire, you know, one thing that really happens that's common to all of us is we are busy. We are holding everyone else up in the world. Um, we have our to-do list is extensive. So our brains are now in survival mode and it's truly called survival mode. And so this prefrontal cortex in our brain is getting tons and tons of blood flow to the survival multitasker mode that we all know we have to be. Otherwise our house will crash. And so that right there can just, if you, if you look at the studies, just being in that survival mode, having the blood flow go there or the way I describe it to women, I don't necessarily go into that much detail with them. I just say your brain is so preoccupied keeping everything else going that it doesn't, it truly cannot engage in that level of activity or desire. 
And we now have studies to show that things are going on in the prefrontal cortex that's saying, hey, women are in survival mode and the blood flow is all going there. And that's dropping her dopamine. That's dropping some of the neurotransmitters that we know are so important to a woman's desire. So if you actually really want to look at it from a neurochemical transmitter standpoint, things actually inhibit neuro neurotransmitters in a woman's brain that drops her desire so it's not just us not wanting to have sex with our husbands and being like oh i'm too tired <laughs> of course we're all tired that is part of it but she just doesn't have the desire because she's her, her neurotransmitters are being depleted by this survival mode in her brain so these new medications that work on desire are working to counteract that and elevate these um these neurotransmitters in the brain to help her um be able to sustain that level of desire in the long run. That is super cool. That's it's exciting to know that there's that much research going on, especially about the female brain in that way. Like I, I love all that stuff. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's awesome. Um, another question about PMS or, you know, any kind of premenstrual we're talking about, whether it's extreme moodiness or cravings or um, just a lack, complete lack of energy. Um, and it comes out of nowhere. What would you say to somebody who's struggling with that? And they, and maybe they haven't before, maybe this isn't typical for them. And this is a new symptom. Well, I think we're back to um, your period sort of being a manifestation of how you've treated your body. So sometimes not always, but sometimes, you know, Lifestyle changes can lead to heavier periods and guess what's happening right before that period is that premenstrual um, circuit is starting to set up. And so most women will find out that heavier periods lend to worse PMS symptoms. We certainly know that PMS can, um, I always tell women, you exit your reproductive years as you enter them. So everything's sort of a mess when your body's trying to get organized enough to have a period on a regular basis in adolescence. And there's this pituitary axis that is communicating with your ovaries. And it's a very pulsatile, you know, kind of beat, like your heart beats, like pulses. And you'll get a couple pulses and you'll get a long pause. And then you'll start pulsing again. And it becomes, you know, rhythmic. And then you get a pause and then a pulse. And so this happens when you're entering your reproductive years, but also happens when you're exiting your reproductive years. That is why women feel like a hot mess in their late forties, because sometimes the signals are there and it's pulsing along. And then sometimes there's a long steady hum waiting for their brain to give their body the right signal. And women are like, okay, Hey, I'm now depleted. Now I've gone quite a bit without getting the estrogen or progesterone I needed. And so I think PMS really deserves a lot more attention as we're getting into this perimenopausal state because women who are perimenopausal can still have cycles but they can also have as they're starting to sort of deplete their ovarian reserve and pass into that menopausal transition their pms can peak and that's like no fair it's like that is almost as unfair as having wrinkles and pimples which i now start to get like what is that like you shouldn't be able to get both of those and so that's not what happens like that is not okay and so that's what happens with pms for women when they're starting to head into their perimenopausal years and a lot of that has to do with that dysregulation or that lack of pulsatile activity from their brain signaling to their ovaries to produce hormones um, monthly and so think about your moody teenager 
That's what happens with your moody, perimenopausal, premenopausal woman. Um, you know, PMS, women who are probably more at risk for PMS are those that may already have issues with anxiety or depression. Um, and again, it's just a it's just a rapid depletion in serotonin that can occur right before a cycle. Um, a lot of that's estrogen driven as well. And so, you know, I always encourage women to understand that if it truly affects their quality of life, and more than that, not even their quality of life, if it's impacting their social interactions or having some sort of what we call social impairment, then it needs to be addressed. And women who, and a lot of women don't want to feel that way. They're like, man, I feel like everyone in the world's crazy and I'm the only one that knows what's going on. And that doesn't feel, that makes me, that makes them feel crazy. Um, but a lot of them will tell you that they just really are irritated with everyone around them, or they find themselves yelling at their children and having a short fuse, being super snappy with their spouse, or perhaps their husband had, comes with them to the appointment and says, Hey, I want to make sure you tell her about this. <laughs> and so oftentimes the partners are like, Hey, I'm going to need you to get this in check because, you know, we're all walking on eggshells here around, you know, every, every four weeks we're walking on eggshells right before your cycle. Um, but, you know, PMS also is impacted by how we, um, you know, how much we sleep before that, you know, what we're putting in our bodies, i.e. sleep, are we, are we taking more deposit, are we making more deposits than we are making withdrawals on our health? And, you know, PMS is no stranger to um, showing where your weak spots are. So if you struggle with depression, it's going to be exposed. If you're not sleeping well, it's going to be heightened around the time of your cycle. All those things kind of sort of are exposed um, in the premenstrual um, days leading up to your cycle. That's good. Yeah. I love how you're connecting the, the impact on the brain during all this as well. Because I, I think it is really interesting how it can all be so connected and how our hormones play such a role in everything. It's really fascinating. Um, so let's talk really fast about stress. How can we support our health by maybe managing, limiting our stress. And I'd love for you to just share why that that is something that we should be looking at. Cause so many women are like, yeah, 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 whatever. But I know that this is something that's important to you. So share with us what you can there. Well, I think let's talk about what stress means. Stress can mean a lot of things. I think understanding that stress is actually a catecholamine response in the body where you're getting a lot of epinephrine, a lot of norepinephrine, those fight or flight type hormones. So when you feel stress in a situation or just at baseline, you are walking around with sort of a high catecholamine production. Um, that can elevate your body temperature, make you feel hot, make you feel flushed all the time. Um, and we know, like we know that women who have um, anxiety, we've seen that they can tend to have, you know, a little bit more dramatic um, vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes around menopause. And so I think that that speaks to the catecholamines that are circulating in our body. They also, those catecholamines, they, they function and they interact and impact our thermoregulatory center in our brain. Um, so stress, being stressed, is not necessarily just an actual emotion or something that you feel emotionally. It's also something that you can experience physically. Um, 
And, you know, that can set up a whole host of issues. Um, I think stress is related to inflammation in the joints. I think, I think stress can lead to inflammation in any organ system. It's interesting to see how some, where people hold their stress. Some people hold it in their soft tissue. Um, they have a lot of inflamed um, soft tissue and body aches. I've seen, especially during COVID, women who hold stress in their bladder, there was a peak of bladder infections. Like, you know, their words, not mine, but this is a bladder infection like I've never felt before. Um, and a lot of that was, yes, bacterially driven, but a lot of it was set up and heightened by a state of stress that women feel or were feeling during um, our recent um, pandemic. So, you know, stress can set the body up into a high catecholamine production state, which can lead to elevated body temperature. It can lead to inability for your mind to focus and concentrate, inability to take in new information, inability to recall information. It can set up inflammation and stress in your body and such that you'll see it in pain, um, infection, um, inflammatory, you know, sort of an inflammatory process, obviously the gut, right? So the gut is very sensitive to um, the stress response that the body goes through. So women may say that their stools are either a lot looser or they may, a lot of them will say that they have, um, their bowel movements are slower. So, you know, I think when you say stress, you have to say, well, what does that really mean? And if you think about it from a um, internal level and what's happening with that stress, cortisol, fight or flight response, you have to understand that it is setting up something because, you know, and some women are like, I've had therapists tell me, I've, I've had them on the phone say, you know, this patient likes to be anxious. They like that feeling of that elevation of catecholamines. That's how they're productive. That's how they get things done. And so I want to say too, maybe all stress isn't bad, um, but some stressors responses are what we need to get our get ourselves in gear. But walking around in a chronic state of stress um, that you feel emotionally, you need to understand the impact it's having um, on you know on your body internally. So while it is an emotion and something we feel, it's also a process um, and something that's occurring on an internal level that will impact, you know, your health long-term. So good. Yes, I absolutely agree. I've seen it in my own life. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely am, am, I'm glad that you're bringing that up. So we are running out of time, cannot believe it, but I will ask you my last question, which is if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone towards wholeness, what would it be? Um, I think one piece of advice would be, well, for me personally, I would say boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. And I'm not saying that I have good boundaries, but I think when we understand the um, ecosystem in which we thrive really well in, we need to be very sensitive to anything that crosses over that barrier and disrupts that ecosystem. And what I mean by that is if something, you know, if I'm around a certain person that seems a little aggressive personality wise, um, and, and that tends to have a response in me that sort of disrupts my ecosystem, then I need to be more careful how I let those interactions occur in my life. So that's maybe on an emotional level. Um, on a physical level, you know, putting things into my body, 
And then I see the next day, I didn't sleep well. I didn't feel well. I'm not functioning at my best. I think that's also um, another, you know, signal to me that I've sort of allowed my ecosystem to be disrupted. Um, so I think that, you know, engaging and listening to things like what you're doing, I think that really sets women up to be in a place to um, get better insight into some of the things that may be going on with them. And I think that that just more information allows women to realize sort of what sparks that wholeness in them. That's so good. And thank you for saying that. That's, that's really yeah. kind of you, but man, I mean, I just, I, they're like, I feel like we just hit the tip of the iceberg and we could totally dive down into all these other topics, but we don't have time to do that. So where can people follow you on social media or find out more about what you are doing at Charleston house? Um, let, give us your info. Okay. Well, um, if you want to become a patient, we would love to see you. We have patients that come from all over um, Dallas, DFW Metroplex, some even from East Texas. I've got patients that come from Houston even. So we would be honored to care for you. So our office is located in Dallas. Our website is www.charlestonhouse, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-T-O-N, H-O-U-S-C, sorry, G-Y-N.com. Um, and from there, you can find access to all of our social media links um, and more information about our practice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was so valuable. And I think you just touched on a lot of things that is, I, I think they're going to be empowering for women in order to search out more of what is optimal for them. But you know, eliminating those things that are common, but not normal, you know, all of that. I think that that's just important to go down, down our own journeys to finding those things out. So thank you so much for what you're doing and how you are empowering women in that way. And on this show as well. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.